live from Edmonton, it's Prairie Film Companion Live! With your hosts, Gerardo Ramos, Kyle Ball, Edmund Rotia, and Delbert. With musical guest, Seahawk. <laughs> <laughs> and Maya, Maya Rudolph. And now, I said Sia, not the cast of Prairie Film Companion Live. Let's get ready to rumble! Ooh, ooh. Oh, oh boy. Hey, I hit the right one. All right, let's go. Okay, hello, hello, everyone. Welcome, listeners, viewers. Thank you so much for tuning back in. It has been a very long time. Goodness. A whole pandemic has gone by since we did our last episode. And, well, we stopped because we're, you know, distancing, keeping each other safe, and we missed each other a lot. So we had a conversation, and we thought, let's pick it back up. The world's a little safer. People are, you know, taking care of each other, healthy, and we really miss doing this podcast about films. So I'm going to give everyone a little moment here just to recap the whole pandemic and everything you've gone through. No, I'm kidding. Just to check in on how you're doing, what you're excited for, why we want to start a podcast, anything that comes to mind. I'll toss it off here to my left, Kyle. Hi, I'm Kyle. Um, We decided to redo the podcast and we've also are going to do a little bit of retooling um you'll find out a bit more about that in a bit uh over to edmund uh hi thank you kyle um my name's edmund edmund from edmonton great to be back and uh yeah hope everything is uh, well for those of you who are listening but yeah excited to start the podcast again because you know i had been spending a lot of time organizing my vhs collection (laughs) i have thousands of tapes and I thought, hey, I, I shouldn't be spending all my time organizing all my VHS cassettes and <laughs> Laserdisc and, and Betamax. I'll do some podcasting. Mm. So uh, I'll take it to uh, Delbert. Hi, my name's Delbert. I'm new to the podcast. I was uh, in the library crying, and uh, they found me, brought me in, and something to do for the How'd next How would you like to make some money, young man? <laughs> That's what we said. No, yeah. It was, it was worth every penny. Very good. All right, great. We are missing one other member, our dear Anthony Gertz. Let's May have he a rest in peace. Rest oh. in peace, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> oh, perfect. No, no, no. Anthony is not harmed at all. He's doing fine. He's just away in Calgary on a film shoot. We wish him well and great success. So, a little round of applause for our man, Anthony. Oh, okay. I'm getting my soundboard skills back. Nice. Anthony will come back in rotation. We're going to do a, I don't know, an interesting four or five person hybrid with maybe guests and side episodes. We're kind of figuring it out along the way. Right, gentlemen? Yes. Mm, Cool. All right. But we are changing our format a little bit. We're approaching each episode in the form of a question. So I'll let Kyle introduce what that question for this episode is. Okay, so um, before we get into the question, I just want to give a shout out to our sponsor, Flair Airlines. Um, if you, oftentimes flights sound exactly like that. 
Have you ever been in Edmonton and thought, uh, at Edmonton International Airport and thought, I wish this was more difficult and only slightly less expensive? <laughs> Flair Airlines, they exist. That's Beautiful. their slogan, they exist. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, so I, came, I, I, I came up with the idea. Um, if we, for each episode, asked a, a um, spicy question. Um, so the first question for this uh, inaugural episode is, why are so many directors evil? Um, I've kind of always thought about it as a director myself. Um, growing up, I had to compartmentalize from a very young age that the people that I looked up to were evil or, or at least questionable human beings. Um, I've noticed other people in other art fields, musicians, they, they, they kind of look at their idols with rose-colored glasses, but I don't, I don't know. Okay, so um, I don't quite know how to go into this. So mm. some notable directors who are at the very least questionable. Um, John Landis, the director of um, a few movies such as Blues Brothers, uh, the Thriller video, uh, Animal House, um, is known for um, – almost essentially causing the manslaughter of three actors, including two um, illegally hired children on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. Uh, Roman Polanski, I guess enough said with that, he raped a child. Um, the guy who directed Jeepers Creepers, same thing. Um, Lenny Riefenstahl, enough said there, she was a Nazi. Um, was she? Was she actually a Nazi? I thought she just like worked for them. Even though I know that. Well, but <laughs> yeah. Okay. There was a, um, there was a famous uh, philosopher, Martin Heidegger, who was on the fence with her, and then he had this set of notes. Wait till seventy years till after I'm dead, and it turned out no, he was a Nazi the whole time. He was a Nazi <laughs> the whole time. Okay. Yeah. Um, and and geez, it seems like there's. It would even almost be easier to name directors who aren't evil. Like okay, there's Ron Howard, probably Steven Spielberg, mm. but even people like Quentin Tarantino or Paul Thomas Anderson, like mm -hmm. they're not known for being nice by any stretch of the imagination. So why are there so many evil directors? Yeah, I mean it's kind of like. I guess not inherent in the role, but maybe the role itself is like a pretty easy breeding ground for an ego-fueled individual, even if that person wouldn't normally exhibit those things. Because, I mean, you're in control of a lot. Like, if it's a high, big-budget movie, it's, it's like money, it's people, it's these, you know, stars of the world, it's these artists that are at the height of their craft there's a pretty big ego that exists there to like just even run that right a lot of times they aren't 100 percent in control though it feels like right. it's, the, the, the producer chaos the right influencer and, too, i think right? a lot of the time to get there too it's a very competitive field and the ones who've gotten there have like sort of learned to like okay if i'm not aggressive and if i don't pursue this and kick the guy up the ladder behind me i'm i'm not gonna get ahead it's even mm. more than that though like lars von trier so 
he he's known for not being the most likable person, which okay, artist, whatever. But then his career was kind of ruined when he said at the Cannes Film uh, pre- Yeah, at the Cannes Film Festival that he idolized Hitler. Or he said, I can understand where Hitler was coming yeah, from. Yeah, which like, like that. Um, so it, it it's not just egomania or like, oh, they had to be aggressive to get ahead like, like Madonna, right? Because musicians kind of have to be aggressive to mm-hmm. get ahead. Um, mm. Yeah. Well, can I, can I ask like a little sides question that yes. still pertains to the main? I mean, a lot of us here in the room have been on set in some capacity kind of bumping with some of these people, either directors or whatever. And I'm just curious out of your own experience, like have you felt or run into a director that you felt like, oh, that guy's like a control freak or an asshole or possibly even evil? Have you guys felt that? I've never had a control freak and it wasn't in a professional setting, but like we had, uh, like I remember one director at film school who was sort of constantly assigned the task was very bot or rude in her attitude like sort of didn't know what to do was like the last to arrive on set the first to leave and like to, to very direct just yeah just attitude. like thought because they were given the position that there was like uh in itself like the reward for something like they were right. you are now prince of the film set instead of okay right. you've been charged it's all on me guys I, it, it like like that kind of attitude like i got a lot on my shoulders guys right it's like why like, i get to be two hours late and hungover right yeah it's like, almost like you're crossed to bear right yeah. although i don't want to use that analogy it's just like oh yeah it's like woe is me i have to mm-hmm. manage this ship right yeah. Edmund, I'm curious about your experiences. You filmed um, a little bit. Have you? Delbert any... wasn't finished his. St- oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, there wasn't. Oh, okay. There wasn't much more to that. And I found uh, what made with this director kind of difficult to work with. I worked with him as a producer once, and then as a cinematographer later. It was like, not they didn't understand the technical side of it. So like, mm. it's, yeah, it's poor communication. Then I think for some people, and I don't think this happens too often on real sets. But maybe like in a school environment or a weird position where someone's been given it instead of had to set up because usually in an independent or small budget film setting, the key creatives like the director will have put their own money and elbow grease and oil in like mm-hmm. Kyle has for his movies or mm-hmm. Anthony has right. and Gerardo has for his projects. And then even though he won't direct anything like great right. patron of cinema, Edmund Rotia. Oh, thank you. you so I think to. like the... <laughs> Oh, that's, that's not the one I wanted, but okay. <laughs> but yeah, and it also too, like I've been a pretty bossy, mean, uh, like director of photography on uh, hmm. some of those, and that for that, give I think, me that lens now. <laughs> no, it was it was yelling at my DOP ca- or my my DOP my uh, my the assistant director when he was about to slate. I forgot he was about to slate, so I saw him walking towards the camera, and I was just like. On two hours of sleep and like, do you know what the fuck we're doing? No, he's like, get out of the fucking shit, Cam. It's like, no, he's all right. I'm, I'm real. Yeah. I'm sorry, Cam. But right, right. Yeah. That's just, that's a side note there. But sure, yeah. I think I, a big thing though is like one of the big jerk directors or directors who are not kind to people, James Cameron. Oh, There's I a, hate him. But there's like he Wait, started why? out as a truck driver. 
in Canada, mm-hmm. and well, he worked his way up. He's as a model maker, and for Roger Corman started Roger there. Corman's then he became an art director, DOP director, head of this, and like basically fought his way up. Oh wow! So it wasn't like he wasn't like a great like a USC film school grad wasn't anointed. So I think with him in particular, like if someone isn't helping, they're in their way. But it it might depend a little bit. He yeah. um he started I, off as a truck driver. Wow, yeah, like when that. he was in his early twenties, right? But like he um he's not Michael Bay bad, but like a <laughs> notable example was on the shoot of Aliens, which was shot in the United Kingdom. The crew hated him because in the UK they have these things called laws, and it's a different culture too, right? So they have tea time on set without fail, right? Mm. And he didn't like that. Like in the States, they just have lunch and smoke breaks. And, and they were like, no, you're. this is the way we're doing it. And he... Anyways. Yeah, there was a... He, apparently he knocked over the tea trolley. Yeah. Because there's a... Oh, you have uh, a mid-afternoon and a mid-morning break, which they didn't have in like the world of like... I'm Roger Corman and you're my slave. Yeah. <laughs> they've got <laughs> labor laws there. So apparently uh, he knocked over this nice lady would come with a tea and biscuits and mm. he like knocked it over one day. And to get back at the <laughs> English, he sank their ship. Dun, dun, dun. And, and there was and <laughs> drowned tons of tea trolleys, if you think about it, in right. Titanic. But yeah. it, it could be too, um, him being an asshole, but also... A different workflow because uh, Aliens is a sequel to a famous movie called Alien. Yeah, and the director He's of Alien kind of known had as, a similar yeah. trouble with Blade Runner. With, he right was after a British guy crew. who didn't get along with the American crews. I never thought about that. Yeah, and they Blade had to make Runner. shirts that said "Xenophobia sucks." Yeah, the Blade I, there was Runner a whole thing and... with shirts where um, th- there was like a battle of the shirts. Like um, W. C. Field said, "I never met a man." I, I, I didn't like and crew members started making shirts saying uh, W.C. Fields never met Ridley Scott and then it became this battle of the shirts and then at some point the producer said okay no no more sh- no more no more shirts like no more <laughs> take your shirts off it's like yeah. that's why Rutger Hauer in the final scene of the movie is only wearing a speedo and a pigeon right in the rain um, I wanted to go back for a second to Edmund's personal experience. I was jumping around a bit. Sorry. Uh, no worries. Uh, I was curious if you had ever encountered that type of personality um, on set. Not really, because I haven't been on set as much. Uh, like, I do more producing and logistics. Um, but, yeah, I have been on, like, I, I guess sets for, like, student films and emerging artists where people didn't have a clue. Uh, but, yeah, I totally um, think that with whether you're a producer or a director, um, you have to have these people skills you have to have these leadership mm-hmm. skills especially in this post-covid uh, uh era where yeah you know it's not about being creatively uh, intelligent technically intelligent but also being emotionally intelligent mm, yeah and uh yeah like like i get it like there's a lot of people who come from a position of privilege and they're able to produce and direct uh what they want and uh with that privilege um especially depending on how they were brought up like they might not know how to deal with people or someone who's young and in film school and they're right. between you know they're 17 to 21 years old and they've never really worked uh in in a job where 
you have people's lives in your hand and yeah with uh like i come from a more um like like i serve part-time in the military and the reserves and uh one thing that we always teach is like leadership skills like at every level and the, and mm. there's this leadership course that you take at some point in your career where, where, where you learn how to deal with people you, you learn how to manage them effectively uh, you learn how to delegate responsibly um and ensuring that the people that you're taking care of the people under you so that you can carry out a task and take action and execute and be successful which i think is lacking in in a lot of film schools like i've never been to film school you guys have all been to uh film school Mm -hmm. did they have some sort of leadership well they had director's class and and Mm -hmm. they there they didn't like there wasn't a lot actually now that I think about it on like there was there was a lot of little soft micro skills and like mm-hmm. big picture stuff. But the in-between stuff you're talking about, like right. the kind of I don't want to say human resource stuff, but like these are this is how mm-hmm. I I almost remember more of that in like I never took the IATSE course, but they they do right, a little bit of the set eloquent. And yeah, I get course. it. You know, when, with uh, film sets, depending on what your discipline is, what, depending on your job, right? The, uh, these are skills that you learn kind of along the way, whether right. it's on set or uh, like an indie project or right. you, you do professional development. But yeah, in the military, it's it's very formalized, right? So when, when you're going through, um, they call it uh, primary leadership qualification, PLQ. They teach you things like That's public a speaking, name for... uh, <laughs> teaching drill, uh, how to fill out various reports if someone gets injured. Right, um, it's you, very you know, systematic. talking to people one on one, coaching, training. It, um, yeah, yeah, maybe there should be some more of these soft so skills. What, what, what I'm hearing from you, industry. It gets, I, Delbert wants to break. Sorry. Yeah, it gets sure. knocked on a, a bit, but I took the. Uh, digital cinema program that Kyle did mm-hmm. a couple years ago and for all of DMIT there's required communications and uh, organizational behavior courses and I mm-hmm. will say going in a little bit older to the organizational behavior courses like uh, sometimes the students there like you get web people gaming people and they're forced to take it so the audience is a bit captive but I thought it was pretty good and there's some good like application of like psychology and philosophy mm-hmm. and like just talking mm-hmm. about how there's different personality types on a project and you have to understand, appreciate, and communicate with everyone and their different goals and expectations out of it. And I've, I uh, took it after my first year when there was some of those bumping heads and mm-hmm. egos on mm-hmm. set and I thought it was, it, w- it was a good, if you went in with an open mind, it's just like, mm-hmm. oh God, I gotta take this career and life management skills course, it was bad. But I, <laughs> right. I found if you went in with an open mind, it was, uh, it, it was pretty helpful, but nothing specific to like being a leader on a film set, no. Mm-hmm. Right. Do yeah. you think the egomaniac director motif has become so popularized that people mimic it? Like, yes. Like, oh, for sure. Like, yeah. that's yeah. been. Yeah, memification. Yeah, like, that's been. I, I don't know if it was so much a, a thing in, in like pre 60s Hollywood, but certainly after the auteur era. It, it became a thing like these young hotshot crazy guys let's blow this up and do that like and it 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 feels like oh to be a director like growing up it was like to be a director that's what a director is they're an egomaniac who just right. goes yeah. for the hills and i i think too a similar thing happened with a uh, 
lot of professional sports coaches, and you're seeing now in hockey a lot of, uh, I don't want to use cancel culture, say these coaches are, are getting canceled because it's used that flippantly or loosely because they're finding out a lot of these guys, like this former Detroit and Toronto head coach Mike Babcock was like a pretty vicious and like petty bully in their it, that was the expectation for a lot of years. Now the pendulum's starting to mm-hmm. swing the other way, and I think it's happening with directors and studio heads the other way too. But it became a you have to be the egomaniacal artist. Mm-hmm. You know that? Mm-hmm. Um, who's that? She was in her. She was in Tron Legacy. Olivia Wild. Wild. Olivia Wild has um, directed a few features, and mm-hmm. I've seen a few articles pop up where she's interviewed about this exact subject and she actually brings up a story of it was either a producer or another director um who gave her like quote life lessons and they were all these toxic ridiculous that like dick measuring things and i believe this was another woman too right like just here's what you got to establish dominance you got to do this you got to do that and it's bizarre the 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 way people tell themselves these things and and a see it as success b live with themselves and mm-hmm. and and act on it right like it's who who looks at a movie set as a dick measuring contest so to speak like mm-hmm. yeah. oh, the, the weird like i think uh dissociation as we often think of other than maybe some stereotypical sort of directors being stereotyped as having their films as being cold a lot of the time we think of not just filmmaking but art as passionate and a celebration Mm -hmm. of the human spirit and when you hear of Mm -hmm. a director like okay nobody talk to Shelley nobody be nice to her it seems counterintuitive to the goal of filmmaking and art how someone could the means clearly don't seem to justify the ends here and the means in some cases seem to completely contradict the ends Mm mm-hmm can we can we uh, transition to uh, okay? So, why are there so many directors who do horrible things offset? Right, like if you think of all the most notorious directors, there's there there's stories about on set, but like they do a lot of bad stuff offset too, right? Like again, Polanski, Riefenstahl. Polanski, I think is uh, and I'm not. I want to make it clear, I am not at all justifying what he did but his mother grandmother and a few other his family members were killed in the holocaust right his pregnant wife was murdered by the charles manson gang yeah i think he was maybe he was a bad egg before all that happened and would have been otherwise but with him in particular i think like yeah he'd like what he did was abhorrent wrong no one should ever give drugs to a minor and engage them in, like, it's an absolutely morally, like, abhorrent thing, but I can see, like, why that guy might have cracked mentally. Wasn't, like, the piano kind of based on the story events from his life? Right, yeah, the pianist. Um, He drew experiences from, but, like, he was a baby during the war, right? But it's still very personal for him because, like, it affects him, right? But it's based on a real pianist. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. can we do like a tiny little case study on one guy in particular? Because sure. I'm always curious about this, like students and then filmmakers and their perception of him. Because I personally have never really liked his films before all of the controversy. Are we going to talk about Kubrick? No. Oh, okay. No, no, no. That would be great too. But 
the person I had in mind was Wes was Anderson. No, <laughs> no, that guy's a sweetheart. Ron Howard. Oh, this is good. Keep it going. Oh, uh, Dolly Smurfette. Parton. <laughs> Dolly Parton is the most mean human who ever. Uh, John lived. Waters. No, not quite. He's uh, let me let me drop some hints. Uh, okay. Uh, New York filmmaker. Scorsese. Harmony Corinne. No, not quite. Scorsese. No, not quite. The Statue of Liberty. Uh, yeah, I guess you could. There's, there's definitely a lot of statues. Mel no, I, I was saying literally the statue. Oh. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, no. Woody Allen. Yes. Oh, oh, right. oh wait, can go. I? This is, this is a uh, meeting of the minds. I've always hated mm. his movies. I have Right. Seen, okay. Yeah. I've only seen, I think, uh, the Owen Wilson Paris one. That, oh, yeah. that's that I, I like that I like one. that one too I saw that on like good. an airplane and probably I was like, hey, that's great you know what I find with him I like it if he's not in it <laughs> absolutely like, I, I really love sleeper but that's I like sleeper, sleeper probably too, like actually. the only memorable what, what is that one about seen. it's sci-fi parody Diane Keaton yeah oh. it's basically he plays a robot guy he's oh, um cool. you know he's I don't know I think he's selected for like um science military experiment or a science experiment where he's frozen in 1973 mm -hmm. and he's revived in like 2473 like a few mm. several hundred years later oh, 200 cool. years later i think i could mm. be wrong nice and uh yeah wakes up to kind of this dystopian utopian r reality you know um and where he gets enlisted into fighting the resistance Mm -hmm. yeah, kind of like Bananas, which came out like a few years earlier where he plays this regular New York guy. Who's in a, and he becomes yeah. recruited into some sort of guerrilla resistance in Central or Latin America. Mm. So th th those are probably the two most memorable films. I haven't really seen his other ones. I, You're not missing I can't else. remember if it's <laughs> right. like Annie Hall or Manhattan's oh, story, right. but there's one of his like prime peak or most famous movies from... Like 79 or 81, I think it's Mariel Hemingway's the actress, and she plays like a 16-year-old who falls in love with Yeah, her. that's so Manhattan. Like, right. He could have right. easily made her a college kid, and the same story would have worked. Right, yeah. Um, you know Diane Keaton's real legal name? What's I her do real? not. It's Annie Hall. Really? Wait, what? You can, call, you can call the police. They'll say the same thing. <laughs> no, it's true. It's, it's actually true. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. Um, so anyways, continue with the, well, I like, I mean, I, I kind of bring it up also cause you know, the, the discussion was always around in film school and this was before kind of the documentary had come out and a lot of the news had come out and stuff like that, but there's still like obviously inklings of it throughout the centuries. Mm -hmm. And I always had a conversation with fellow film students that was like, oh my God, he's like the filmmaker. And, but it also it all to me it always just like his films kind of read as that what we just talked about earlier about a very particular person grown in a very particular environment that was you know suited to kind of be an ego maniac in his own kind of schluppy way of like yeah. being a nerd about it but i don't know like i just never never took to the films and then i always i always looked at him as Kind of being one of these people that's like, oh, he's just kind of like taking advantage of this art form that like allows you to kind of be this larger than life figure, even in his mm -hmm. own taste. But yeah. so for context, where did you go to film school? Yeah, I went to film school in New York, which is pertinent because he's right. Quite, yeah. yeah, I didn't. And did I you bump into him together. when you were like, we didn't really talk no. about Woody Allen that much at Nate. 
Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. No, yeah. And so, like, I mean, yeah, to me, the topic always touched on something bigger about, like, I don't want to get too large in general, but, like, just art, art mm-hmm. at large. You know, like, even when I was in New York and I would go to all these museums and it was like, there's these lavish monuments to, like, beautiful artwork, but there'd just be, like, homeless people all around it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, like, the cities are just kind of, you know, like, bigger versions of that. And I just kind of got this growing sense of like, whoa, like people put this painting above like a human being's life most of the times. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of just have always felt that about film that, oh, like, you know, you can sacrifice people's well-beings on set Mm -hmm. for the greater art. You know, and I always like hated that. I was pain is temporary. Film Um, is forever. So we're right. John Landis, right? Coming to that point, we'll come to John Landis. Um, but when you said, um, sacrificing someone's well-being, well-being, mm-hmm. it makes me think of the most uncomfortable, oh, this director did bad stuff in my mind. So it wasn't criminal, mm-hmm. but Stanley Kubrick's treatment of Shelley Duvall right. on the set of The Shining. So, mm. um, Kubrick fanboys will acknowledge it but just like yeah it's 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 art whatever and i like if someone signs a contract and says i'm going to be in a movie that doesn't give you carte blanche to treat them however you want right and just because the performance came out good that doesn't make you a good person for having done it so how does that make you feel like you being like a really big fan of kubrick in that film in particular watching her performance which is pretty incredible like how does that make you feel it's it's in 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 a perverse way it makes the experience a little bit and i don't want to say this but richer too Mm -hmm. because oh she she literally went through pain this is on very weird levels works um Mm. his daughter vivian has um tried to advocate for Shelley Duvall um, one time. I don't know if you know this, but Shelley Duvall, so she's obviously had mental health issues and blah, blah, blah. And Dr. Phil saw this as a perfect opportunity to exploit a celebrity and um, interviewed her through a multi-episode arc. And Vivian Kubrick actually uh, tweeted that she found it reprehensible and disgusting and all this stuff. And I... I really want to know how she feels about the whole thing because hmm. she she was there for it. Um, and in one sense, okay, well, that's just my dad, you know, who hmm. by all regards is, is was a great dad. But, you know, he, he did essentially a form of psychological torture on this person. He's, I think right. he just saw it as a chess game. Well, that, that's that's even worse. Like you can't just say, "Oh, well, he." Th- that almost makes it seem like like Shelley Duvall had 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 just as much a, of a right to enjoyment and not to be abused as as Stanley Kubrick did, right? right. And it, I think it also is another thing. Oh, well, they just look at this as play. They just look at this as art. Like that doesn't give them an excuse. There should be reasonable people to figure out that you can't make someone do a take a hundred times and some of these stories have been embellished but 
I think too also we don't have or there was the not as an appreciation for mental health yeah even back right. as far as like 1980 like uh I don't want to go off on a side tangent but John Huston made a film about post-traumatic stress mm-hmm. in World War II sh- soldiers uh, I think it was just called shell shock then mm-hmm. and it was banned because it was like nope there's oh, no such yeah. thing as mental health we're mm. not touching it especially so it, that mm. too because sh- being shell shocked was looked down on so much right? yeah, people right. used to be executed for and it's it's a sign of shell-shocked. like if you've wow. got a mental health problem it was interpreted as a weakness of character like oh shelly you're not like yeah s- mm-hmm. taking the kubrick thing or like oh you can't do as many takes as james cameron wants like no you're not right. tough enough to work in this industry yeah type mm-hmm. bullshit and the thing is shelly duvall never really quote wanted to be an actress she was discovered working at like kfc or something or like really? a mall <laughs> by robert altman for nashville and he cast her mccabe and miss miller yeah 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 oh, and then cool. or or yeah uh, i don't know which i guess i guess cave and miss Miss Miller, and then her career took off after that, right? So she wasn't even a classically trained actress, no, right? She, she had a small role in that. She oh. sort of joined his company in the Nashville and three women and some other ones. Yeah, and they always uh, Popeyes. Appear- See, Robert Altman's an interesting <laughs> um, antithesis of Kubrick because he's very well loved by actors like people actors love working with him they they don't see him as harsh and they he's very much a a actor's director right and it's it i i i almost think because i wonder if she had the idea oh this is great every director is going to be like robert altman i can't wait to be in more movies right and then Mm. she had to deal with kubrick Hmm. yeah um, i always feared like not only in, in film school, but then afterwards, my own gauge of being on set and being like, kind of taking on those roles of like, oh, do this because we're on set and we have a short amount of time to someone else, you know, like making them, I don't know, go another extra take or my, my biggest fear was like, you know, you hear these stories about a director going up to say there's two people in a scene and going up to one of them and giving them a certain set of rules being like, oh, no don't tell them anything and then going to the other one and like playing this like very almost like gaslighting manipulation manipulation game well you can do like doing a little bit like that is kind of par for the course right right? like if you're doing it in the context of oh i'm gonna pull i'm gonna pull an emotion out of someone what if i what if i uh uh made the made the actor not eat lunch but like that's that's a little bit part of the course right like no fair fair but my fear was always like oh how far can i will i let that slip within myself and i remember actually when i was shooting my thesis in new york i i like i was i had it in my head that i was going to be the cinematographer the director and have like a small crew and just like do it wherever I could. And when we were shooting this kind of final scene, um, in short, like the, my, my piece is just about like little vignettes of like me and my mom and like memories and Aww. just recreating them. And, and then there's this final moment where it's just this like very emotional moment in, um, this scene and the mother figure is just like crying. Right. And as an ignorant kid in film school, I was just like, yeah, okay, so this is the scene you're going to cry, and we'll just go through it a couple times, blah, blah, blah. And then the first time we went through it, I'm, like, walking in this dark room. It's candlelit. It looks, like, quite morose, Mm -hmm. and I'm recording. I'm like, oh, this is looking great. This is looking great. And then we, like, cut. And then after that take, everyone kind of, like, settles, comes out, and then 
I didn't have enough sense to like touch base with the actress uh, who was portraying the mom. And the actress is kind of like off in the corner and everyone else kind of buzzing around. And then I hear her just start weeping, like just like full on weeping. Uh... And I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, my humanity kicked in. And I was like, what the hell did I just do? Like Mm -hmm. in that moment, I was like, it's not worth making a movie if I'm going to put someone through that torture. And then I went up. I was like, I'm so sorry. What did I do? Like, was there, was there something wrong? Was that too far? What, what, what? And she's like, no, you know, like, uh, thanks for checking in. But this is just like part of the role. This is me getting there. And like, I'm just, this is like mm-hmm. coming out and it just needs to. Uh, and it's okay. And I was like so scared. I was so baffled that that was like a dynamic. You know, that's so different from every other human dynamic you go through in day to day. But um, I've always just feared that, like going a little extra, being like, oh, I can do that. Oh, well, what else can I put up? Can I sew mm-hmm. human beings together and make them a human centipede? Like, no, I would never do that. But I'm saying, you know, there's this Whoa. scale. Whoa. The future opens June 10th. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, well, as long as you stay within your parameters, because bringing in the uh, military example, right? Mm-hmm. Like you could have people working under you, what they call the subordinates or, or your troops. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you have to be aware of what you're allowed to do and what you can't do. And uh, th- th- that involves, um, you know, well, I guess, from the perspective of the director, you know, what can you do within the context of the union, the Screen uh, Actors Guild of America or mm-hmm. um, ACTRA here in Canada? What, what, what can you push your, what, what, what can you do within the confines? So, uh, what are your ethics, too, and... Um, morals, but yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's certain limitations to what directors can and can't do, especially in the treatment of actors, actresses. Yeah. So. What's the most you would push someone to do for a shot? Die. <laughs> that's kind of no. That's not, <laughs> that happened in the past year. No, no, no. Uh, no. Um, yeah. It it depends on the thing, and I think a lot of it too. Be- becomes about communication, mm-hmm. pre-planning, and setting expectations. I think that Shelley Duvall situation is almost a bit of a nightmare one because mm-hmm. Kubrick had this incredible stuff or trust from the studios where he didn't have a schedule. He shot until he was happy mm-hmm. with shooting was was done. So The yeah. Shining took a year plus to film and. Mm-hmm. Like when I think on most other movies, okay, we're gonna be at the bathroom for two days. We got to get this shot done and this many hours and I think sometimes on a Kubrick set it was this is the 14th day we've been in this pool room for eyes wide shut like he was notorious for Mm. taking an extreme amount of time and I think there's I can imagine a unique terror and anxiety from coming from that and maybe having to play an abused character too and like how long am I going to be stuck here in this mindset Yeah. and then maybe like in the evil chess game Kubrick's playing too like oh my she might uh, get a little used to it. Might get a little weak here. Got to like mm. ramp up. Mm. Like there's, mm-hmm. yeah, there's, I think, unique megalum, megalum, bad traps of the Kubrick one. Be a, mm. I feel like people treat Kubrick and, and Hitchcock, who also is kind of a bad guy. Um, right. Like really? Shakespeare. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, he was super bad. Oh, <laughs> he, he basically. I've only seen that biopic that they made a few years ago with um, Anthony Hopkins. He wanted, he basically wanted to like get Tippi <laughs> Hedren to fall in love with him because, you know, Hitchcock sex symbol, right? Like he basically had a sexless <laughs> companionship marriage with his wife, and and 
Tippi Hedren did not want to have <laughs> And previous actresses Yikes. that had worked with him, because they were kind of established, they he he didn't bother with them, right? Like he knew that if he if he pushed Ingrid Bergman too much, like he it could come back on him, right? But Tippy Hedren was fresh, right? Like he he wanted to mold her into something, and yeah. the the scene in in the birds where all the while the birds fly on her in, in mm-hmm. the attic like they were literally throwing birds at her right yeah it's kind of so like that, tough to watch when you know that that was like a like three or four days of them doing that and oh, there was no wow. reason to like do, like right, he like was just hurting excessive. her right like right and the she, movie he made after with her sean carney rapes yeah. it and it's presented right. as like a positive liberating act for her. it's like really yeah. it's yeah. even well, like like the bird being having like live birds thrown at you is bad, but it's like depicting rape as like a positive. There, it's it's a pretty. Mm-hmm. Although that 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 we could blame a little bit too on the attitudes of the time and maybe the source material, but like that the there's there's a whole other story about Marnie too, I guess. So he has a great uh, quote. I can't do it right, and I can't do a good Hitchcock impression, but he's like. Uh, uh, actors are just cattle. That's a horrible hitch. <laughs> oh. And that's not even the right quote. You, you, you need to eat more. If you want to, that's pretty good. <laughs> no, no, he's British. If you want to smack these titties around, you're gonna have to eat this ass first. I've never pictured. Oh, master of suspense. <laughs> Hitchcock He's, getting his ass eaten. He makes you think, you know. He he makes you <laughs> think. I he, I. That's good. He got Jimmy Stewart to do the most un Jimmy Stewart things ever. Like, <laughs> wait, what did he make Jimmy Stewart? Oh, oh yeah, really? like, oh, yeah, or any like, or even um, he made him like a postmodern philosophy professor in Rope. Who, like, but he becomes Jimmy Stewart oh, by Rope, the end yeah. of the movie. But mm-hmm. yeah. he gets Jimmy doing some wacky stuff. Oh. Rear window being a voyeur. Yeah. Oh, that's the, who who did that? That was a good Alfred Hitchcock there. That, oh, no, I I was doing it all. Good. No, I was doing Jimmy Jimmy there. <laughs> no, it sounded more like oh, 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 a sinister oh, looking cat wants to see. What a wonderful <laughs> life. <laughs> um, uh, so I we're I just kind of want to gauge our time here. We're kind of nearing the end of our hour, but I did have a kind of a question that flips it onto us a little bit. But before we did, I know we didn't dive deep into any specific topic. Was there anything else anyone wanted to bring up about this topic? Why are some directors evil? Anything else? I, I think uh, a, bad parents. Yeah. Okay. Sure. I think yeah. in a nutshell, because we allowed it to happen. Okay. I, I think I think that's that's really all there is to it. Just like if you're hmm. even to expound on that, like. People like Harvey Weinstein, filmmaking Hollywood. It, it, there's always the excuse of "oh, it's art." The ends justify the means because we allowed it to happen, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like the egomaniac director is dying. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's. I, I have that same sentiment. But actually, before we trail off there, m- my question was actually kind of exactly that. In flipping it into ourselves and not only as viewers and, well, filmmakers ourselves and hope to be bigger ones in the future, to what degree have we kind of fed this or made this possible where a director 
could be lauded for doing wild megalomaniac things on set because, oh, that's that's what they want or that's what attracts them or that's what's interesting about this art form. To what degree are we responsible? I think we don't we didn't really push back on it or question it for a long time. Yeah. And, and the bitter reality is we live in this capitalist society where, you know, it's very profit driven. Um, productions are getting more and more expensive, especially with your Marvel, Star Wars, blockbuster films. Right. So every minute is several and, hundreds of thousands of dollars. I know one, one thought I've always uh, struggled with is there's a logical fallacy called the ad hominem attack where you make an argument uh, a, or a, a claim against an argument or, or you argue against a claim and instead of arguing against someone's premises or conclusions or something that they're defending, you attack them. So let's say, Gerardo, you want to quit smoking and you go to your doctor or you're trying to quit smoking your doc- or your doctor says to you, Gerardo, you got to quit smoking. But he's Dr. Bill, and Dr. Bill's a smoker. So you say, well, come on, Dr. Bill, you're a smoker. That's BS. Go fuck yourself. That's so what sort I of the... <laughs> You know how your doctor always said, like Woody Allen. Uh, you know, you got to quit doctor smoking. My doctor is Woody he Allen loves fries, but, uh, in every post-war Italian I've never, I've, I've avoided Woody Allen movies because I get compared to him, and I don't want to go through No way. But anyways, you know, but I'm sorry. I'm gonna, yeah, go ahead. But so there's, in a way, like, we hear... Martin Scorsese say, oh, movies are represent a kind of truth. That's what they do. Or like yeah. Werner Herzog, film represents the ecstatic truth. So yeah. no mm. matter how the thing gets made, I've, you know, it's not a belief I'd really want to hold on to today, but I can see maybe a way of thinking, well, the movie stands by itself and yeah, it doesn't matter how it made's because it, how it's made because it represents this truth or it is this thing and it's separate from the maker making it in the same way Dr. Bill is different than his argument against smoking. But mm. I've I don't know I don't think it's good justification for like endorsing a culture that doesn't respect mental health and encourages like egomania and abuse. But mm. yeah, that's right. just sort of yeah. my two cents on like how maybe one could separate them in their mind. But mm. Okay. I don't. Good, yeah. I don't think it's a. Yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't, Yeah, I. I think you should avoid movies from directors who are not good people. But oh, possibly, except for maybe Cooper. Well, maybe not that's going to Okay. Yeah. No. Yeah. You got John Carpenter and Apollo thirteen. Yeah. <laughs> and the Care Bears movie. No. Yeah. I mean, like, I again, like the Robert Altman. <laughs> so, like forty movies. Yeah, I mean, like the topic to me always always kind of gets bigger in general. Like I always go think about like the great artists of painting and, and music. And we hear a lot about like, well, some of them like fucked little boys, you know, like yeah. we, we hear these really reprehensible things about. I still hear figures. people defend Michael Jackson and I'm so sick of it. Sure. He, and like, he did it. And well, yeah. And like, you know, we'll, we're always going to live with these things. So, you know, much like yourselves in, in saying like we, we don't do enough to either say something about it or address it. I also think to a degree we we like, I don't know. Well, I, I, was, I have I, another point. Um, okay. So just coming back to the Michael Jackson and, and the way it would relate to this. As a filmmaker, I've, I've never defended Roman Polanski. And I've always found it bizarre the way... Okay, I've always loved his movies. I've always I've 
But <laughs> since I was a little kid, I looked up to these people who I knew did bad things, right? Mm. I've known about the Polanski thing since I was little because it was a joke, right? Like, oh, Polanski, mm. ah. <laughs> And I don't – I've never understood why people will – they, they think – to like Michael Jackson, you have to defend him. And I feel like right. a lot of film and and Tarantino defended Polanski. And I thought, why why would you do that? Why do you care? Why do you think this makes Rosemary's baby any less of a masterpiece? Mm. Do, do you feel that you need to defend this person? I don't understand it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Like you don't know them. You've just seen their movies. You don't need to defend this person as it like well, yeah, no, I think that is the good point. I think that's kind of what I was getting at about holding do- both things to be true, right? Mm. Like these these uh, great artists can be horrible people, and these horrible people can make great art, you know? And, and oftentimes the two are, are mutually exclusive, right? right? Like it would appear. Yeah. Um, no, I just I kind of point to like my own upbringing and like things that I've watched in terms of movies and art I've consumed, and I think I I, I – I always held a lot of shame towards myself to be like, oh, I shouldn't, like, there's no way I can hold those things and reconcile. And it always just caused, like, dissonance within me to be like, oh, like, I love Chinatown. Mm-hmm. And it's a great film, and I love studying it. But, like, how do, could I support that person? And, yeah, anyways, I'm just getting at that. There has to be a way to understand and I think that's the nature of the things. world, too. We're in this beautiful mm. library, in this beautiful city, in this great country that was taken through like genocide and colonization Mm. we're using this wonderful awesome equipment some of which was probably maybe a lot of it and like we've all bought it so i'm not trying to point out thank you for bringing all the equipment gerardo by the way (laughs) but it was probably made in a sweatshop like there's sure it's these road microphones are made of dead kangaroos (laughs) (laughs) my dog eats kangaroo meat kyle and gerardo explicitly said it's okay to eat kangaroos if you're a dog More Australian. We tried Don't to... get in a racist. You're another racist director. I said, I said, Gerardo, don't you want some Sennheiser or some, or some Harman Kardon? And he said, no, I want those dead kangaroo <laughs> koala corpse microphones because it sounds better somehow. This, Fun fact. This drum pedal says Iron Cobra 200. Who knows what it's made of? <laughs> no, I was just going to say, fun fact, I have killed a wallaby. Really? Wow. Whoa. Wait, yeah, I thought what? I told you guys this. No, story. this is a this is a podcast topic. What's the <laughs> craziest the animal like, you've intentionally? ever killed? No, no, no. Okay. I don't I don't have that within me to do it intentionally. But I was just like driving with friends while we were on a road trip in Australia, and it was like the last leg of it. We needed to get in Melbourne by a certain time for our, our flight, <clears throat> and I got overnight driving duty, and so my friends are all sleeping. It was like three of us, no, four of us. And I'm like blaring music, trying to make it through. And these back roads of Australia have like no lights, no cities for like hours, right? So I'm just going. But guess going. what they do have? <laughs> well, yeah, along along the highway, you'll see little lights flicker up. And I was like, at first when I saw it, I was like, holy shit, wow, like that's right there. And you just drive so close next to them. You know, we're booking it on this highway. And then after a while, I see this little like thing kind of start to move out in front of me. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I, I have to move. And thankfully, there was no one on the opposite side of the road. So I started, like, veering off. And the thing didn't stop. It just kept hopping uh, slowly into my vehicle. Uh, Bam! Yeah. I smack it. And it didn't, like, go flying or anything. I don't know. I ran it over, probably. And my friends jump up. And they're like, what the fuck was that? And I was like, all right, calm down, calm down. 
I think I killed a wallaby. <laughs> I'm not going to stop because who knows what else is out there. But just so you know, if there's blood on the, like, it's probably this little wallaby. And I think it's a wallaby because it was like a small kangaroo. It looked like right. a small kangaroo. Or it could have been a baby kangaroo, which makes it, it all came, the worse. It came boomerang back. <laughs> and it's like, I'm going to eat mo- your baby. But now you know. You this. were framed by the, a mother kangaroo who took it out of its pouch and tossed it in front of your car. Uh, you could have a dinner that night. Or well, now you know that this filmmaker has his own things that you need to. It's like you're the wallaby. That filmmaker (laughs) is Gerardo Ramos, and now you know the rest of the John Landis killing three people, the cannibal Holocaust guy, and then Gerardo Ramos for killing what? Oh, there's the the Heaven's Gate director. He was a bad guy? Uh, uh, Michael he, Camino killed cattle on the set of Heaven's Gate. Oh, and that's why okay. they have the no I know about that. in the making yeah. of this. Yeah. Huh. Mm. Oh, really? That's Werner Herzog is uh, not a great record. And y- Yodorowsky blew up some. I, I hate Yodorowsky. I don't give a shit about him. He's evil. He's uh, evil. Uh, oh, if he made Dune, it would have been way better. No, Come no, no. no. It I, I think he's crazy. <laughs> right. Not evil, but it, it would have been, been different. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. All right, I don't want us to bleed into yes. another topic just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, any last words on our topic here, gentlemen? Devil's gonna get you. I I think there are some examples of directors who are liked by their crew or like like at least liked by actors. So I think some silver linings there. Like mm-hmm. actors love Robert Altman, and he's makes them do extreme things, go through emotional highs and lows, violent scenes, sex scenes, and they're willing to do it because he's able to mm-hmm. build that trust and some reason to justify it and always works with the same crew often in actors and has them coming back, so they want to do it. Another dir- er, director who actors and crew claim are great to work with who works with the same people a lot, David Cronenberg gets people yeah. to do crazy things. Right. And like, he's like there's quite loved, actually. By, there's yeah. interviews with the cast of Crash saying, no, we had yeah. a great time. It was really comfortable. That's and amazing. I don't want to go into the details and of that And David Lynch, but, too, come yeah. to think of that. He's quite well-liked. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. I heard a creepy story about him the other week. Oh, but it was what, a little, what did he it do? Was, uh, oh, don't ruin it. I won't. I won't. <laughs> I'll do it off the podcast. I don't know. It might sure, be hearsay. Yeah. I don't want to be because I like David Lynch, too. So Yeah, I know. Or his movies. I don't know about the person because I've heard mixed things. <laughs> no, uh, that's a great note to end on. You know, you said earlier that like the pendulum feels like it's swinging. And yeah, like, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, mm-hmm. it felt like kind of fucking Wild West. I remember watching some movies where it's like you can viscerally tell like, oh, that's a fucked up thing that they did on set. Or that animal is like legitimately dead on camera yeah. and you're watching it die. And now like the, I feel like the pendulum is swung to where... You know, not that we're in this militarized structure, but that emotional intelligence about your crew, about your mm-hmm. cast, about what you're doing is much more important than just getting this shocking film. Well, well, society has changed a lot, right? Like women are are no longer subservient to men as, you know, the Wait, 50s, what? 60s. No. Oh. Well, I'm just saying we live in this uh, more politically correct Me Too Okay, just say that era again. <laughs> where, you know, um, studios are striving for diversity inclusion mm-hmm. and equity and people are a lot more smarter and have different platforms and um yeah, yeah you know while we're once marginalized oppressed uh groups have 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 risen up and they're making great works themselves so yeah, yeah you know I, w- I would hope that things continue to get better so that we don't yeah. have those ego maniac directors where 
people are abused or people have to die on set. Can because I unfortunately, just make people a... still are dying on set. We witnessed that recently on the that film with uh, Rust. Yes, that's right. right. Yeah. No, yeah, it's a good point. I, mm-hmm. I just want to make a recommendation from personal experience. It's an incredibly powerful lesson, and I recommend this to every director. Direct something that has kids as the stars mm. because with kids, it's a one-on-one lesson on on just people skills to the hundredth degree of how mm-hmm. having to deal with actors, right? Because mm-hmm. you have to be on your best behavior. You have to make it fun for them. It's a great crash course. Oh, I think we're right. being kicked out. I think we're being, no, it's we? not eight 30 yet. No, we have it still. Oh, that's someone knocking on the door. Sorry. Yeah. We should be good. Yeah. Okay. But that's a good point. Really so sorry. yeah. Um, and it's rewarding too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just a little quick anecdote about that. I remember in film school, they're like, don't make a film with kids or, or animals. Because it's really or tough. special effects, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. If they didn't say that to me, but I'm just, you know, like those, those or are the, James Cameron. Traditionally, the three things: no effects, no animals, no kids. Or Woody Allen. Harry Potter had all. all <laughs> right. No, it's no, true. No, exactly. like, they, like that was a thing. They like yeah. And so, anyways, like yeah, the challenge there is like that. There's a lot of good reward. Saying yeah. That instance. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, I think we should wrap there, gentlemen. Um, before we do, though, I wanted to thank you guys. Thanks for coming to do this podcast again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Thank such a nice. I've nothing better to do on a Friday night. <laughs> no, it's so nice. I mean, like we I'm had kidding. spent so much time isolated and going through wild things in the pandemic. Like I miss this so much because it was like a nice touchstone base to talk about something so much that we all love. You know, outside of this, another context, it's like, oh, we're going to do something. We're either watching a movie together or there's never like time to like sit on a subject. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate your time and energy today, gentlemen. Next episode, we're going to finally ask the question that's been on everyone's mind. When is everyone going to stop pretending that Citizen Kane's actually a good movie? It is a no, good movie. I'm not, I'm not, it's a great so movie. Good. I'm just sassing you. <laughs> just sassing you. You're, you're, you're being too sassy there, mister. There is a man, a certain man. It is a man. <laughs> All right. We'll do a couple of shout-outs here to the end. Thank you to Anthony Gertz, who is not here. Yeah. But thank you. A little round of applause for our man. Yay. Uh, thank you and our sponsor, Air, Flair, Flair Airlines, <laughs> will oh, get you God. to uh, from Edmonton to Calgary in 16 hours. hours. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, viewers. We appreciate your time and your energy. We aim to kind of do something bi-weekly, right, guys? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll see how that goes, yeah. and we'll yeah. keep it coming maybe even more frequently so yes dun 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 we're all on board for coming more frequently (laughs) we'll see you at the movies all right send us off edmund sing what am i supposed to say no sing you were gonna yeah you were gonna sing us out it's like everyone's clapping and at the end of SNL there's like the East the performance. Band. Well, usually uh, people get on stage with everyone else and they all Right, clap. right. We should do that. All right, go. So thanks. Say your thanks and we'll roll your credits. We'll Here roll credits. Comes. Thank you for watching. Stay. That's... Come again at hell. the same time on the same channel on the same dial. Great job. Right. Good job, everyone. All right, perfect. That's eight oh four. We're good. We're good. That's a that's like good out. Good All right, job, rap party. Woo. Good job. Good job. Do I look fat? You look Kyle, sexy. I'm sorry for interrupting during your your epilogue. I thought it was a knock on the door, but I think it was a.